Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. The other day on social media, a friend asked, what the heck is up with this Mr. Rogers revival? Why does everyone suddenly love this guy so much? Moments before, I had been listening to a new podcast about Dolly Parton and her weird, almost saint-like ability to bring people together across cultural divides. In a moment of deep mistrust and cynicism, there's this hunger for people and things worth believing in. I've also got bodhisattvas on the brain lately. In Mahayana Buddhism, bodhisattvas are the embodiment of compassion, absolute compassion for all living things, even those that really piss us off. The World Could Be Otherwise is a wonderful new book by my guest today, poet, Zen priest, and translator Norman Fisher. It's a collection of thoughts and practices for becoming bodhisattvas ourselves, warts and all. A bodhisattva commits to the impossible for the benefit of everyone. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. According to Norman and a couple thousand years of Buddhist tradition, we can do this too. Bodhisattvas or saints, Dali and Fred Rogers possibly included, are needed at all times and places. But right now, when trust and kindness are in short supply, we maybe need them and need to embody them more than ever. Welcome to Think Again, Norman. Thanks. Great to be here. We already kind of had a whole podcast before this one began. We were talking about T.S. Eliot (laughs) and all kinds of things. But where to begin this subject? I had a recent guest, the author and playwright Deborah Levy, who said during our conversation that the most awkward thoughts are, or the awkward thoughts are the ones that most need airing. As people who have listened to this show for a while may know, I've spent a lot of time investigating and reading and practicing within within Buddhism and have landed mostly within a Western tradition coming from what's called Vipassana, within Theravada Buddhism. We're talking here, I don't want to get too technical, but I, I guess I want to give a little bit of a framework because we're talking here about, in your book, about active practices of imagination, mm-hmm. of like, leaps and bounds of the imagination that lead toward that that make us bigger than we could otherwise be and and for me where i ended up in theravada buddhism it was very much about i was so confused by those imaginative leaps mm, <laughs> i got mm-hmm. to a point where i was so confused and so over intellectualized and so tangled up in my head with all of the various like bodhisattvas and beings and different kinds of tantric practices Uh and so on, that I I needed something much simpler. I needed to come back to the breath, to the body. (laughs) That's not a question, (laughs) but maybe you can start Mm. from there somehow. Mm. What one is to do in that model? Well, I mean, I think, good idea. (laughs) Good idea, yeah. (laughs) Breath and body, that's it. (laughs) I mean, uh, you could say that... uh, that's the site or the seat of imagination is to, I mean, because uh, my, my great insight, which is, you know, as all great insights, the most obvious thing in the world, right, is that breath and body and basic awareness is life, right? I mean, that's bottom line, life. Right. If you're not embodied, you're not alive. If you're not, if you're embodied but not breathing, you're not alive. Mm-hmm. If you're embodied and breathing but there's no consciousness, you're technically alive but not really. Right. So body, breath, awareness—that's your life. That's life. That's the bottom line. Every problem you ever have 
every joy you ever have depends on that, depends mm -hmm. on your being alive. Right. But we're all running around like lunatics with all of our problems and all of our issues, but we never stop to notice this basic fact of being alive. So I think that for me, that's meditation. Just returning to body, breath, and awareness itself. And that's, very, that's a very simple thing. Like you say, it's, it's, it sort of cuts through all our bright ideas and all of our problems and issues and emotional entanglements. And it's just life. It's just our life. And, and, and that, just being with our life, is a brilliant thing that like is very cheering and it's the source of every possibility that we have. So that's meditation for me is just returning to the feeling of being alive. So here's the thing, like if, you know, the feeling of life, the being, being alive, like if you're, if you're, your state of existence at a given moment is as it is for many of us, most of us, all of us fraught with suffering, right? Yeah. Let's say you are, depressed let's say yeah. you are sad let's say you're dealing with that kind mm -hmm. of stuff mm -hmm. that i found i mean and some of that depends on temperamental baseline and this kind of thing but like i always find the idea then of trying to embody ultimate compassion or trying to aspire to these grand what are they called paramis perfections uh parami in the theravada tradition Paramita okay. in the Mahayana tradition. Yeah. Okay, these perfections that mm -hmm. you talk about in the book. I always found that a little bit like those, you know, like often in the context of modern feminism, women will talk about all of these like pressures to be something greater than they can uh, possibly uh, be. Uh -huh. Right, right, right. At, at times it becomes overwhelming, it seems to me. But you're, you know, you yeah. you are really making a, a, a play here, I would say, yeah, in this yeah. book to say embrace that and at the same time to somehow let yourself off the hook for right. the pressure that that entails right exactly yeah how yeah, yeah i mean i'm i'm uh, who knows what the actual uh, you know you, you write something and, and, and then you have no idea what the effects of that are going to be on readers so i have no idea what readers are thinking when they read this text but the idea that i had in my mind was no this is something like really grounded just like you say, really grounded in the body and in the breath and the simple fact of being a living being. It's grounded in that. And, and it sort of is encouraging. Uh, I'm encouraging myself in writing it and encouraging everybody who's reading it to take that up as a basic, fundamental, everyday practice. Just returning, grounding yourself in you're alive. And it's very simple, actually. Whatever right. problems you have, actually, this is a very simple thing. You're alive. And this is, a, this is about your body. It's about your breathing. It's about being aware. And come, there's a sanity in that. There's a, the, the body is so damn smart. You, know, you, may, you may be confused, but your body is never confused. It knows exactly what to do. You know, your body, w when it's hungry, it's going to say, I'm hungry. And when it's sleepy, it's going to lay down and take a nap. You know, your body right. knows exactly what to do. So it's kind of rooting yourself in what's fundamentally sane about your life. And then the next thing is, right. you go, then you get up and you walk around and you do stuff. And then I'm really writing the book in the face of this gigantic thought balloon that's like covering the entire world right now. And to me, that gigantic thought balloon of like scientific materialism and international crisis and bad politics, it's not that that stuff isn't the case, but when that becomes the entire content 
of our lives. Right. Once we get up from our meditation cushion or get out of bed in the morning, mm. that's what we're living. We're mm. all living that. To me, like, I don't want to live that and we don't need to live that. And it's not helping us. That's what I'm saying. There's another way of looking at this whole thing. Now, I get the, what you're saying about the pressure. Now, all of a sudden, I got to be a perfect bodhisattva. I've got to be like entirely virtuous every minute. Oh, no, I forget it. You know? <laughs> no, I'm saying, I, I say a million times over and over yes, again, you e- even though, even though I get it that you don't, that, that doesn't register, but I say a million, million times, no, 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 no. This is not about holding ourselves to impossible ideals. Ideals are human. We have ideals. We're, we're never going to get away from them. Part of like our misery right now is that we all have ideals and we're so miserably not living up to them that we're all depressed about it. Mm. So we can't get away from ideals. This is about affirming our best human ideals and recognizing that we're all pathetic human beings who will never ever live up to those ideals. I say this again and again, but we will never live up to these ideals. In fact, that's the whole absurdity of them and the beauty of them is that we can't live up to them. We will never live up to them, but that doesn't mean we can't go in that direction. We can't walk in that direction. Yeah, and, and be and, honest about where, how we're doing, you know? And I know, and I know that you say that multiple times and, and there's some part of my brain that is just being obtuse here, I guess, yeah, where no, I, I, yeah, it just I feels it. like, how it. do yeah. you call something a perfection Yeah, and at the same time let yourself off the hook without it being a question of letting yourself off the hook you know yeah yeah well one of the <laughs> concepts yeah yeah, yeah. One, of, one of the ideas i bring up in the book is the idea of binocular vision remember that yep so you have two eyes you see with two eyes if you, if you only have like robert creeley only had one eye you know so he he could see but he didn't have depth perception right. because you need two eyes for depth perception so with one eye you see very accurately more accurately than you otherwise would how your life really is. You're willing, actually, I think most of us are not willing to cop to what a wreck we really are. Right. So with one eye, you see that, you see that completely. And, and you don't bemoan it or you don't uh, bewail it. You just say, this is how it is. Okay, this is how I am. And with the other eye, you see uh, the heart's desire to be a decent human being, to be a loving person, to be a kind person. And that's an aspiration. And you affirm that aspiration. You say, no, 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 Whatever, wherever I really am, I really do want to be a kind and decent person. I really do want to be with other people in a, in a kindly way. And so that's truly my desire. It's not, I'm not able to do it all the time, maybe hardly ever, but I really do want to do that. That's who I am. So yeah. you see both sides of that. Sure. And when you see both sides, I think you can have a life that's on the one hand, very, very honest about who you really are. And at the, on the other hand, aspiring, uh, constantly working toward uh, being a better person. So I think that that works. You know, and that, of course, that can be done. And of course, that is what imagination is, right? It's the exactly. en- entertaining of something exactly. non-existent that exactly. we nonetheless aspire to. Exactly. And I think that human beings always have that. And, and the way that we're living now, it's perverted. It's, I think that's, if you, if you want, why are people like upset and depressed? It's because we know we're better than, than what we are now. And we mm-hmm. don't see any way that we could get there. And so we're kind of like crushed by where we are. And I think we need to bring up that sense of aspiration. Yeah, it's a painfully literal moment, I guess. I was thinking the other day about the fact that we're sort of on a war footing, culturally speaking. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, that old Churchill phrase came back to me and I'm like, we're on yeah. a war footing like yeah. all the time. And, yeah. and I thought about how, you know, when you're on a war footing, everything is binary Yeah. and, you know, extremely literal, extremely binary. And I thought about art and how, you know, giving yourself permission to make art in a time like this almost feels like a guilty pleasure. And right. then I thought yeah, further yeah. about it. And I thought if we don't, give ourselves if if no one is giving themselves that permission then what world is left after the exactly. world war is over exactly we have to keep that space of imagination aspiration and dreaming open otherwise you're right like what what's going to happen to us we won't be human anymore literally we won't be human anymore yeah so you you'll correct me on the chronology i don't actually know the chronology but i know you've been involved for a long time with the san francisco Zen Center, is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. um, in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi, mm -hmm. uh, Shunryu Suzuki, mm -hmm. Suzuki, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and is widely credited with bringing Zen Buddhism to the West. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to know, hear a little bit about the evolution of your own life and practice within that mm -hmm. community, and mm -hmm. like how your understanding has evolved along with the history of that mm -hmm. movement out mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, the Zen Center was founded out of the ethos of the 60s, right? So Suzuki Roshi, he always had a dream for some reason of coming to America and teaching Zen in, in America. And he finally was able to do it. And he drew right away, uh, it was like the moment in San Francisco, Haight-Ashbury moment. What right? year are we talking, 68? Well, he came in 59, huh. but he began very slowly sitting with a few people in the early 60s. And by the middle 60s, that's when the city was already, you know, in the Haight-Ashbury moment. And so then yeah, uh, and it if I may suddenly interrupt, burgeoned. Yeah. If I may interrupt also, yeah, like by 59, you have already the Beat Poets the beats are and there. Yeah, Ginsburg yeah, yeah, yeah. and all them. Yeah, San so. Francisco super lively yeah, yeah. culturally in the late 50s. So it, it started off uh, slowly, but by the middle 60s, within five years, he had a giant bunch of young people who were all completely alienated from the life they had been given as children and were looking for something else. So it was really, really lively and really sort of culturally uh, bursting at the seams. But there was, uh, you know, nobody knew anything about Buddhism or anything about Zen and everybody was young and Suzuki Roshi was in his late, in his late 50s, early 60s. Right. So everybody uh, just uh, became enamored of Japan and Japanese culture and all the paradoxes of Zen. And, and it was certainly, it was exotic. It was alien. And people took it on and, and loved it, but didn't really understand it and didn't really make it their own for, the, for, for another 25 or 30 years. I mean, it should be said it's also a cultural moment where those young people are really not, in some ways, many of them not looking for discipline, you no, know, which no. is a big part of the Zen Buddhist well, tradition. Yeah, he, like, he, you know, Zen Mind <laughs> Beginner's Mind is full of discussions about the virtues of discipline and why discipline is not about whipping you into shape, it's about freeing you. Right. Which was, you know, the, the, the opposite of what people people's uh, attitude was. Well, discipline is limiting you we want to be undisciplined and free and suzuki Roshi was saying well no actually not if you're <laughs> undisciplined what's happening is your conditioning is just expressing yourself if you uh, put yourself under some uh, religious discipline your individuality will manifest itself he said that again and again and again you read that all, all over the place in zen mind beginner's mind so he did succeed actually in disciplining these young people 
And they were like great young Zen students, really gung-ho, really disciplined, mm -hmm. did, did you know, amazing stuff, built an amazing organization. But uh, we had to go through a lot. It took about really 30 years uh, from the time, uh, from his time, till we kind of realized, well, uh, we were Americans and we were in American culture. We weren't gonna be, we weren't gonna be Japanese. To, to imitate the Japanese wasn't gonna make any sense to us. And so now I really think the American uh, Zen community has come of age, and it's okay. very much Americanized in, in a How good so? way. How so? Yeah, yeah. To, what What are some of the ways? Basically, all Buddhist teaching, including uh, Zen teaching, comes from a feudalistic social structure, literally, where you have uh, you know lords and emperors, hierarchical, yeah, rigid. and so and so the tradition is set up that way. And uh, to some extent, there is a point in teachers and teaching and that kind of hierarchy. But, but to an, uh, another extent, it creates confusion and it's actually impossible in our culture. One of my little sayings is like in Asia, they have Confucius. In, in the West, we have Oedipus. <laughs> so it, it really doesn't work that well for us. So that's been totally revised, I think, in, in the last 30 years. And, probably, and also Probably through a certain amount of growing pains yeah, exactly. and con conflicts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. A lot of painful things happen to, to bring us to yeah. that. And, and also just coming to the place where, you know, like somebody like me, I've been doing, I've been doing the Buddhism like full time, right? I, just, I haven't done any other career or occupation. Yeah full-time for uh, my entire adult life, you know, for 40, mm. 50 years by now. And so after 30 years of doing it full-time, you kind of get the hang of it and you feel <laughs> like, okay, well now this is what I, this is, this is me, this is my life. And so I, now I feel comfortable with sort of uh, expressing myself through this. I've, I've spent 20 years at least subsuming myself in it and now I'm ready to express myself through it. So I think that mm. happened to many of us over, over the years. So now the movement is quite different. It actually, uh, I guess p scholars are now writing about, about this, about how there's been a number of books actually about American Buddhism and how American Buddhism is the same as and quite different from Asian Buddhism. It's almost like a different religion in some ways, based on the same teachings, the same understandings, but because the cultures are so different and the times are so different, it's like a different religion. Yeah, I mean, I keep hearing kind of, or seeing here and there knee-jerk critiques from people who I don't think have looked all that deeply into it, you know, arguing that it's some sort of you know, cultural appropriation and adaptation where the whole of American Buddhism is essentially an extension of commercialism and egoism, and which mm -hmm. surely that's not, I mean, that's not my, what I'm seeing. I mean, sure, yeah. it, it can exist here and there, you know, there are yeah, probably... Yeah commercialized versions. Yes, yes. Know, I mean, if you know, wanted to make that case, I'm sure you could find numerous examples, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but it's not the case that all of it is that way, sure, for sure. sure. You know. Yeah, I, another question, maybe problem that's not a problem, but feels like a problem, is this thing about, that I, I think about a lot. These ideas, these texts, these practices, they're really important to me, they mean a lot to me. I find a lot in them, I return to them time and again. And then there's like half of my mind and like half of the people that I interact with where the moment this conversation or any conversation like this opens up, the eyes glaze over, you mm. know, because it's all goes into a single bucket of 
religion or uh, uh. Buddhism, you know, in some ways, the most fundamental things you can possibly talk about. And one doesn't want to do like cartwheels trying to yeah. talk about it without talking about it, you know, yeah, but yeah. I don't know, like that, that, that schism. I mean, I feel like inroads have been made, but then in many ways, it simply had to cloak itself as mindfulness. I mean, on the one hand, it's easy to see why there's such a prejudice against religion, spirituality, and so on, because so much of it is, is dumb. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then so much of it is fanatic, right? And then one doesn't have to think very hard to see all the harm that's been done in the name of sure. you know, religion, or n not only the, you know, the religious wars and the, the horrible stuff, but, but just even the rep repression of individuals you know, who grew yeah. up being taught that their impulses were not to be trusted and you know they, they shouldn't be who they were and stuff like that so it's easy to see why people right. have that prejudice but you know to me it is like such a shame because when you take the whole of any religion like even say christianity which among intelligent people uh left-leaning you know people in america christianity often has a very bad tone to it but even christianity uh, has so much great stuff in it. Of I mean, course, it's fabulous. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable stuff. And so to see like really smart people, probably the smartest people we have and the most educated people we have, dismissing, right, a whole vast tradition, which is full of the most brilliant thinkers, right, in the Western and culture. And some of the most beautiful poetry, and, some yeah, of, you know, just... Completely the, throwing it out. And not only that, right. but then in addition to that, and, and here's the part that becomes like relevant politically now, in addition to not only, not only dismissing the whole you know, literary and historical tradition, but dismissing the many millions of people in the present and in the past who've right. embraced it for one reason or another. Now, to be sure, there was a lot of stupidity and a lot of destructiveness, but there also was a lot of sincerity and a lot of beauty. When you think about it, it was there, there was a moment, a couple, I guess maybe it's already a couple hundred years old, but when human beings said, well, we finally have it figured out. Everybody in the past was wrong about everything. <laughs> you know, and we are now right about everything. And we finally figured this out. Thank God we've got it straight. Well, I think 200 years after that moment, we're looking back and we're saying, oh my God, did we not get it straight? Did we not get it right? Yeah. And yet we still have that lag of feeling that people in the past and people in the present who might have what we consider to be beliefs from the past have no validity. I think that that's, we're, we're missing a lot there, too well, much. And, and we think, I don't know who this we is, but... Yeah, yeah, but right, right, right. You and me. <laughs> I think the we that we're talking about think that the choice is between zealotry on the yeah, one hand, yeah. and then I don't know what on the other, because it's not humanism. You were saying earlier that, so how do you share this stuff and how do you talk about it? When, when, you, when you start talking about it, people glaze over you. Outs saying, outside of the choir, yeah, outside and, of preaching yeah, to the choir. Yeah. And then you were saying that, so then what are you supposed to do? Like <laughs> translate it into some other fake language that it isn't? <laughs> Starting from that point, I, I actually do think <laughs> that it is possible to talk about this stuff in a way that people can uh, hear you and engage with you. And it's not a matter of, let's see, now how can I translate these concepts into non-objectionable words or <laughs> okay. ideas as much as it is i think when you when you do the practice for a long time and you make it your own mm. um, you really are in a process of reflection over time like what do i think about my life and what do i think about the world i'm living in you're in dialogue with yourself and the tradition 
And then you're kind of eventually coming to a place where you have a point of view, right? Right. And that point of view, you might say with honesty, well, must be, like I would say myself, my point of view must be shaped by my 40, 50 years of Buddhist practice and study. How could it not be? Sure. On the other hand, it's my point of view. <clears throat> it's not me parroting, you know, what I've read in Buddhist books. It's how, how I feel. That filters yeah, through it's how you, I yeah. feel about, yeah, you yeah. know, life and, and my life. And I can talk to anybody about that. Now, not, not that everybody's going to agree with everything I say, but I don't think that I need to throw a bunch of Buddhist concepts at them in order to be able to talk to them. Sure. So I think we can engage with one another. I mean, I think to me that is really crucial. If we can't engage with one another, unless if I can't talk to you, unless you come into the Buddhist circle and, and master all the Buddhist concepts, otherwise I can't speak with you, that's a problem. And I think that's one of the problems that religion has had. Like Christians have that problem, I think, that it's hard for a lot of Christians to really communicate with other people who won't stand inside the Christian circle. And that's a weakness sure. for that tradition or any tradition that, that demands that. Because I think we can't, if we can't talk about, think about it, where are we if human beings can't talk about the things that matter the most to us? We can't engage on those topics because they're too socially unacceptable. Wow, that's a bad, we don't want that. Well, we can't have that. I guess what I'm thinking about is if the transformation of understanding depends upon practice, right? Yeah. And we're talking about, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you have the idea, You there is the idea within different Buddhist traditions that like you're already always yeah, yeah. there. Yeah. But if there is this cultivation over time, this transformation yeah. over time, yeah. then if you're talking to someone else that isn't engaging in that process, yeah. then there is that, there is that gap. There is that like, well, um, you know, yeah. if you only yeah. went and sat down yeah, yeah, for yeah. 40 well, years. Yes and no. Yes and no. <laughs> okay. And, and this is the thing about Zen that is so great that okay. I, I like about Zen is that, you know, especially like Soto Zen, Dogen Zen, right? If you read Dogen, he so beautifully holds the paradox. And this is the essential paradox. Just like you said, to be human is to be an awakened person, to be mm -hmm. a Buddha. Like for Dogen, the word Buddha and the word being are synonymous. Okay. Being is sacred. Being is awakened. Being is Buddha. And the paradox is that at the same time, transformation is necessary and possible. Right. And it's a paradox. So I don't need to look at you and say, too bad for you, you haven't undergone this wonderful transformation that I've undergone, and that's why I can't really talk to you. I don't, I don't you know, to look at it that way is obviously like stupid and one-sided. So you look at every person and you see the same Buddha that you aspire to be in your life. So there's no problem about talking to that person. And has that person practiced? Of course they've practiced because they lived a human life and they've undergone all the challenges that every, every human being will undergo in a lifetime. They, they're born and they die. So they're in, the, in the, they're in the game. We're all in this game together of how to be human because we are all born and we die. And so we're all doing this practice one way or the other. So there's always a basis for conversation. There's always a basis for sharing. It's not a question of someone having had to sit on the cushion for 10,000 hours or buy a whole bunch of Buddhist concepts that puts them in the conversation with me. It's their humanness that puts them in the conversation with me. And that paradox, so it preserves for anybody who feels it, it preserves the opportunity and the necessity for transformation. So I, I, 
I, I, I want to do the practice. I want to transform. It preserves that possibility. And at the same time, it preserves the paradox that I'm no different having transformed than anybody else. That person is already transformed, even though they're not. It's a paradox, but it's a true, it's a reality. At different times, has that paradox ever become a problem? Uh, I remember once, like a long time ago, you know, you know how it is when you're young and you go to visit your parents, right? <laughs> you know, and you go, you go back into the milieu in which you grew up. And so I remember once when I was deeply involved in my Buddhist study, and I was studying the Lotus Sutra, which has this parable about the burning house. Okay. Do you know this parable? No. Yeah, so, so it's a parable uh, that the Buddha is telling to describe what goes on uh, in the human world. So the parable is there's a father who has a house, and in the house he has um, different uh, sons who are, have, each have their own room, and they have their toys, and they're playing and having a good time in their room. And the house suddenly bursts into flames. The house is on fire. Okay. And so they have to get out. And the father says, the house is on fire. The house is on fire. Everybody leave. But they're so busy playing with their toys. And they're so enamored of their <laughs> toys that they can't, they don't hear them. They don't leave. They don't get up. So then the father then tells them that if they would leave the house, outside the house, there are these wonderful toys <laughs> Even better than the ones in their rooms. <laughs> and each one uh, has the need of a different kind of toy. So he tells each one that that particular kind of toy will be outside the house. And then having done that, the sons leave the house okay. and, and they're, they're saved. And so uh, you can think about that parable in terms of the world we live in now. Think about that, right? Right. The house actually is on fire. Literally, the house is on fire. And literally, everybody is so busy playing with their toys that they don't know enough to leave the house, to do what it takes to put the fire out. Mm. I mean, this is literally what's going on now. But anyway, at the time, I actually had the feeling, which was absolutely like horrifying. I could see that my parents and everyone around them was on fire. Mm. And they had no idea that their house was on fire and they didn't know enough to leave. And I had seen that my house was on fire and I was trying to get out of the house. And it was like scary to walk around a world in which everyone was on fire and didn't know it. And I remember also another m memory that comes to mind is the first time when I was mm -hmm. in the monastery, you know, where you don't, you're cloistered and you don't leave. And I remember the first time that I had to leave to go to the doctor or something, I remember looking, so I was in town, right? where the doctor's office was. And I remember looking on the street and just looking at people walking by on the street. And I could actually see in the bearing and posture of each person, their enormous suffering. Suffering that I'm sure if you had stopped them and said, are you having enormous suffering? They would have said, no, it's a normal day, you know? Hmm. And yet you could see each person carrying enormous suffering. So that, that could be having those kinds of experiences and those kinds of thoughts could be very alienating and could make it difficult for a person. So I think that one would have those moments in the process of practice. But eventually, when your practice would mature enough, your view would mature enough, you would understand that while that was true, and it certainly is tr true, at the same time, it's just a normal day and people are just normal people. I'm, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, you know, that... Um in seeing everyone around you as on fire 
the emergency of that or that, that the emergency feeling of that could lead to one of two things, either yeah. like retreating back into the monastery yeah. or proselytizing yeah. to everyone to the point where they no longer <clears throat> want to hear you. And yeah. that either one would be from the perspective that you're talking about in the book, imperfect understanding because yes. perfect understanding would be compassion, not only seeing the suffering, not only seeing the delusion, but feeling with compassion, feeling yes, with yes, yeah. with each of those people exactly where they are at, exactly, not yeah, from a yeah, superior yeah. standpoint, but as interconnected to them yeah. in such a way that you can then talk to them where they're at, not... Precisely. Yeah, That's yeah. it. That's what I was trying to say before. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. there's no problem with talking to someone about what's most important to you. You don't need a... That there's no... You're, you're completely in the same place that they are. You're not different. Mm you're a poet also and i was thinking about the problem of language um you know and i write poetry as well and i oh, and beautiful. i and i yeah. think about language is very frustrating and you write you write about that in the book about mm -hmm. words mm -hmm. um yeah, and yeah. specifically we're talking you know that's part of what we're talking about here like words get concepts attached to them they get politics attached to them they get all kinds of things attached to them such that the things that you are trying to say are not necessarily heard by mm -hmm, the people that mm -hmm. you're saying them to and vice mm -hmm, versa. Mm -hmm. And so I always find poetry interesting in that it subverts that. Yeah, I wonder how you think about the writing of poetry in relation to the rest of this work. Well, I never really wanted to write these kind of Buddhist books, you know. It was never my idea. I kind of <laughs> got into it backwards and uh, was shocked when people liked the books and found them valuable. And then that encouraged me to continue doing it. But I backed into it. All I wanted to write was poetry for just the reason that you just mentioned, that I felt like, for one thing, there were plenty of books already in the tradition, and there were plenty of people who wanted to write those books in the present. But I felt like, yeah, there was always uh, a way in which you were doomed to be misunderstood. And in poetry, uh, you were so focused on the question of language itself. In other words, to write a Buddhist book or any kind of conventional prose book, you assume a million things and then you write. Mm -hmm. In poetry, you question every assumption about language. That's at least the kind of poetry right. that I'm interested in right. does that all the time in various ways, always uh, doubtful about what language is. In fact, to me, uh, poetry is like the basement of language, you know, where, where the <laughs> boiler room is, you know, and you're sort of like feeding fuel into the boiler room. And then on the upper stories, people are talking and reading books and doing things, but you're down in the basement, like what's going on here with language. So, yeah, so you even, a, you literally <clears throat> like subvert language and in, in a lot of the writing poetry you do, you like in normal syntax, you sort of like leave words out. All kinds of yeah, strategies, yeah, yeah. whatever yeah, I can yeah, think yeah, of yeah, every, yeah, every yeah, all, yeah. throughout all these years. I've used all kinds of different mm -hmm. strategies, but, but it's always, it's always an experiment. Like what is, what is happening here in, with language and thought and how can we uh, make a big question mark out of this? How can we alert people to the uh, absolute indeterminacy and confusion that lies at the heart of language? Cause you know, if things exist in a kind of profound unity, then every word is an effort to slice off a piece of that unity 
and set it aside, and you're already doomed. As soon as you've done that, you've already opened up the world of pain, right? Right, right, right. It's already it's it's, <laughs> ar- it's already a corpse cooling on the yeah, table. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, exactly. So, to, <laughs> so to question that and open that up is what I've been working at, working with in poetry. But you know what we call poetry. Uh, most people, when they think of poetry, don't think of all that, right? Most poetry that people read, I think, is a sort of version of uh, a narrative poetry, a vignette, or a, mm. a story that keeps the same assumptions intact that a prose work would. And so this is a sp- specific take on poetry that I'm participating in. I don't know where, you know, and I part of me doesn't care where the like current official thinking is about what constitutes poetry. Neither do I. I think, <laughs> I think that there are uh, for sure multiple poetry universes right. in just take the United States. I think poetry is international, so there's no factoring off the United States, but there's a million poetry worlds. Right. And like uh, from so Hallmark I, to yeah know. yeah right from from Hallmark and Instagram I guess I just found out the other day there's a kind of Instagram poetry I heard world, about this like famous poets that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Instagram poets that have like millions of millions of followers that that I never heard about like I'm a poet working in American poetry for like 50 years there are famous poets on Instagram that I've never heard of huh. in all the different worlds. In other words, the worlds are so separate is what I'm saying. Got you, got that, you. That, that there are famous poets that other famous poets I've never heard of because they're in another different poetry world. And I don't know how many of them there are, whether anybody could even delineate them, but there's many different poetry worlds. Yeah, song lyrics, I always feel like get get a bad rap from like the poetry academy but probably yeah. should be considered in there yeah well bob dylan won leonard the nobel cohen, prize cohen, right leonard yeah. cohen yeah right right um but so uh i had i i found a couple of your poems online that 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 i enjoyed i wondered if you would read one of them for us oh here. sure i'm and always happy to, to do that of course that. yeah let's let's do this because i think it in some ways intersects with some of the things that we're talking about too night. In some ways, one goes forward in life after having been behind. One strives to get ahead ahead, to get along or longer, and thus advances sideways by wise degrees toward an eventual dark stain whose triangulated nature is marked by its rugged appearance as if there were a continuity in invisible image, not a matter of crawling or trolling, nor do steps or tropes or grips or gripes describe the dwindling moment. I speak of night on a revolving earth, impossible to describe, which we have conceived during the day that cannot be traversed with steps taken to or from the refrigerator, generally found in the kitchen. But why? All things constantly reformatted that could be otherwise and elsewhere. Flesh, which is passed out twitching at the sad beginning of this epistolary tale. So I know that like when we write something, we you know, are often a different person from when we then read it later. And yeah. so I guess I'd like to ask you what what's striking you now as you encounter that poem again? Well, of course, it's uh, 
all in the language, following the language, and the language leading the poem on, rather than I am leading the poem on. But, you know, as, as usual, it's, uh, it's a kind of meditation on, you know, what, what is going on here? Right? Mm. Like, what, 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 what are we, how, how are we here in, in the dark, you know, together? Right. And, and, what, and what are we, what do we think we're doing here? And, and how is it that we're so distracted, right, from these sort of basic realities about thinking and feeling and being in our, in our lives? I love so, that. So image. that's what I was really thinking about. I love know. that image of the refrigerator. Yeah, I mean, something so mundane, so obvious, and yet yeah, yeah. everything, every single thing, well, as the title of your book would have it, could be otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you think about the city that you live in, or I think about the city I live in, right? And I, and I think, you know, about all the reasons that I have why I have to live here mm-hmm. and how like, no, tomorrow my whole family could pick up and move to yeah. Istanbul where my wife is from. Or, you yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, just for one example. I yeah. Mean, and then everything would be different. Yeah. In some way. I mean, I live, I don't live in a city. I live in the country sort of, I mean, not far from San Francisco, but from my house, I can see the ocean mm-hmm. and, and hills without houses on them. So that's nice. Yeah, it's, I, it's, it's very nice, but it makes me think about, you know, like sort of elemental things, right? I think in, in among human beings, we're running around interacting and creating human-made institutions and human-made physical objects. Um, and, and I think my po- poetry is really coming out of uh, more like looking at the sky or looking at the sea and, and, you know, with human consciousness and wondering what it is. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because my son, who is 11, and he's a wonderful kid. I mean, he's, a, you know, a wise being in some ways, uh, in many ways. And also through a combination of historical accident and whatever, he is immersed in online culture, yeah. you know, um, YouTube videos, collaborative games that he plays mm-hmm, with friends mm-hmm. online. And it's been a real interesting Dharma practice for me, trying to actually like be with him in that mm. and not think and speak entirely from my own prejudice yeah. that to recognize that it's possible <laughs> That my idea that like the only good thing is a walk in the woods yeah. might be missing something in the case of his his life, his mind, his delight, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it's not going to, you know, we're talking about the troubles of communication. It's not going to be helpful for me to just no, no, stand no. there preaching about how no, this no, is no, all bad. No. And I also don't, you're coming from a place of ignorance, you know. Yeah, you don't understand what his experience <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. right? Right. So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, as you talk about the sea and like I, my heart is very much there as well. Yeah. You know, what is it to take connection and connectedness forward into like the cyber world, you mm-hmm. know, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing? Is that even, you know, well, we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. I mean, I think that, that for those of us who don't understand it, it's scary and, and, you know, and, and we, we have all kinds of uh, dystopian fears about it. <laughs> 
Some of which are justified. Some of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Well, we won't know for a while, right? And your son will figure that out, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll find we'll find out what happens. We don't know, right? Like the the old Polish expression goes, "Not my circus, not my monkeys." Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) is that a Polish expression? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've some I've heard people saying that lately, and I didn't know where that came from. Yeah, I'm told it's Polish. I don't know where I Uh, read uh, that. uh uh So this brings us to the. what I think will be sort of a coda to, to, our, to our conversation, where I was telling you before we started that there's this box, um, deck of cards called Oblique Strategies, made by Brian Eno, the musician and experimental artist, and Peter Schmidt in 1975. And I, I do think of them a little bit as like Zen koans. They mm-hmm. are um, they're sort of cryptic phrases that they came up with to take the mind in unexpected directions. So... Here, I want in a totally non-literal way, I want to pick, you know, I'll have, ask you to pick one of these okay. and then w- really wherever it takes the conversation is, okay. is where I want it to go. Okay. And the one rule of oblique strategies is you don't get to pick another one. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> ask people to work against their better judgment. <laughs> I think that we don't need to ask people to work against their better judgment that's the world we live in, right? That's what everybody's doing. We're all, everybody's working against their better judgment. I mean, or, that's what people do. Or what they think of as their better judgment. Like if we want to take better judgment as common sense, right? Yeah. Is working against their better judgment, right? That, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking about Zen koans for one thing. I mean, these par- these kind of paradoxes that, that force you to think against what you think is your better judgment. Mm. Or your common sense, or your, your or your dualistic mind. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. yeah when we say better, better judgment, right? we could think that that means the like the true wisdom or something. But I was also thinking yeah. of it as opinion, like better judgment kind of implies conventional judgment, right? When we mm. say, yeah, it sort of implies. So just just uh, <laughs> forget about what makes sense. Forget about what your habit is. Forget about what you feel comfortable with and just in this moment live otherwise. And what would, what would happen to you? What would you, what would you That's sort feel? of like what would you see? when yeah. the monk comes and whacks you with the yeah, stick. Yeah. Do you guys still do that in the Zen center? No, you know, we, we stopped doing that a long time ago. You, you know why we stopped doing it? The most obvious thing, but nobody thought of this. And, and this is like, you would, the Japanese would never think of this. The Chinese would never think of this, partly because the monasteries were all boot camps like the army right? Uh, but Zen places are not like boot camps like the army. They have men and women in them. They have old and young people in them. Plus, they have in them a lot of people who have been traumatized, right? In various ways. Right. So we realized at some point, well, wait a minute, we're hitting somebody. <laughs> and the other guy, five seats down, who hasn't been hit, just like went to pieces inside mm. because that sound of the whacking stick reminded them of something that happened to them 50 years ago. Oh, wow. That's and so, And so we can't be doing that to people all the time. So we, we actually don't use this. There are people who've come to study Zen with me and they never even knew there was such a thing because <laughs> they never experienced it at 20, 30 years and they never experienced it because we don't, we don't do it. I mean, it's funny when I think about it, you know, I mean, just from the perspective of what I know about the mind, 
you know, if the idea is, I mean, it's not an idea, it's an action, but like if the idea of the action is to jar the person out of a kind yeah, of conventional yeah. that, thinking that idea, into yeah. a, into yeah. a more right brain, more open, you know, whatever, like getting hit with a stick just activates your amygdala. Like you, yeah. you would think it, it, even if you haven't been traumatized before, it, it should activate all the parts of the mind that actually shut the mind down as opposed to open it up. Yeah, I mean, it's a strong I, I, sensation. I, yeah. I mean, in, yeah, the, in Zendo, when I was young, a young yeah. Zen student, we did use the stick. And the point of the stick in the Zendo was to wake you up. You were, you'd be sleepy and the stick would, would wake you up. And, and that's also the point of the stick in the stories yeah. is, is, is to wake you up from your, from your torpor, from your slumber. Got it. Oh, it's, so it's, yeah, it's, it's you're a, not making right, you've, you've fallen into the, into, yeah, sloth and torpor as opposed to the, the yeah, joyful so effort or whatever. Yeah. But you know, uh, it's, it's a kind of, um, what's the word? Is it a hobby horse? Is that the word? So, so anyway, something that bugs me <laughs> is, is uh, the idea that the Zen stories are, are uh, irrational and paradoxical that that actually i think is is a false idea okay great because i totally in fact, just uh, said that so yeah, yeah I, that's no, fine. i think it's a it's false good. idea yeah. in my in my opinion okay. I and mean, it was an idea that was that's we in the west come by honestly because the earliest uh legitimate writer on zen in the west was dt suzuki who said that who presented it that way but I don't think that's actually correct. I think that okay. I think that the Zen literature is a totally sensible literature. You can it's a different it's based on different premises than the ones we're used to, but there can be any number of lengthy exegesis of Zen stories that are totally reasonable and rational. Zen stories are saying things that are not hard to understand. It, that involves a lot of paradox, but paradox can be understood when you name it as paradox, right. you know, and right. it, it's, it's a different form of logic, but it can be understood. But the point of the stories is not to defy our logic or defy our thinking as much as the stories are to be meditated with, breathed with, so that the points that they're making that I think are not necessarily difficult to understand can be understood in the whole body rather than just in the mind and in the intellect. So there is a point, you know, that hmm. is meant to, you know, bring us to awakening beyond the intellect, by, but not necessarily by defying the intellect. I mean, I, I think the, the idea that Zen is irrational and that if you're, if you're Zen, you, you, you don't engage in intellectual thought is, is really, I think, pernicious because it makes Zen people into like kind of idiots who don't think, you know? Or it, or it seems so cryptic and esoteric yeah, that there's yeah, no, right, right. It's, nobody can access be, it. You know? Right, you're supposed to be cryptic and esoteric. And I, and I think that's just, just not right. Yeah, it's an, so... It's a play acting thing, you know? Huh. You know, the most dull and classic example is the one hand clapping or the yeah, tree yeah. falling in the forest, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The one hand clapping is a Japanese, the, the classical Zen literature is one thing. And then the Japanese creations of ancillary koans to check the original koans is different. Check them in, the, in what sense? Like to, to, to give you a, a set of problems so that you uh, fully integrate the main case the main story okay so one hand clapping is actually a japanese checking koan that is ancillary to the main cases which are from the 
Tang and Song dynasty. That literature uh-huh. is uh-huh. is different. So it's sort of it's commentary, as it were. It's like, commentary, like Abhidharma, yeah. and, 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 and and a lot of the there, there is a the koan literature is from the Song and Tang dynasties in China, and then uh, that literature is used for centuries, and then falls into uh, confusion and and disuse, and then is revised in Japan in the 18th century. Mm. by a very lively Japanese monk who does have these funny little witty, mm. cute, theatrical things to liven it up. Got you. So when we in, a, in the West think of koans and Zen stories, we're thinking of it through that 18th century guy's re-envisioning of it. I got you. And but, even even there, it would the point would not be, you know, is certainly not illogic, right? As it's, you say, right? It's it's, it's to it's to uh, be sure that your understanding of the tradition uh, is not just thinking. Mm-hmm. It's thinking, but also the ability to be quick on your feet in action. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, when I when I think of it, when I talk about paradox or or, or whatever, and again, I may just be parroting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, something that's not true at all but but the way i had always thought of it was is similar to the way that i think about poetic language that mm-hmm. that it you know not that it subverts sense altogether and it's not lewis carroll or mm-hmm, something but mm-hmm. that but that it causes you to understand in a different way yeah yeah that's for sure that's for sure and i i think we do want to have an understanding i think there is something unbalanced by uh an intellectual uh, overly balanced intellectual approach to one's life, right? We right. don't want to live. We, I mean, we don't want to be idiots, <laughs> so we can't think. Thinking is obviously like hugely important if you're human. We want to be able to think straight, but we don't want to have our intellectual uh, approach to life running the show entirely. We want to have like our body and our heart in there, just as strong as our intellect. And so it's meant to like bring us to our body and our heart as well as our intellect. Not that there's such a thing as pure intellect, but what is considered a logical or rational or pragmatic approach to things so often is just easily kind of subsumed into, you know, just kind of supporting what you already believe to be the case, you know, as opposed opposed to the kind of heroic imaginative leaps that you talk about in the book that, that, that we need to grow. And for me, a lot of it has to do with like, that's, you could say that that's what studying a Zen story in the classical way is about. It's about really listening for what the story is speaking into your whole body and heart. And that's a big deal for living, right? Because if you're really an intellectual and only an intellectual, then there's not that much listening because you're taking in stuff that um, rhymes with the intellectual mindset that you've developed over time and everything is fodder Mm. for that intellectual mindset. Mm. And to listen, you kind of have to drop that to some extent. You have to like, so what, apart from what I think about it and when I come into the room ready to think about it, what is it that's there? Right. So I got to like set that aside. I have to have the capacity to set that aside, at least for a minute. What, because what about another person? What about a human being who's there? Like, am I going to just like subsume that person under my intellectual framework? But or see, am I going to listen to But them? see, I always think of that as a kind of, you know, 
you know, and I don't know whether this is like a European postmodernist thing or what, but like I always think of that idea of intellectualism as a perversion of what I think of, of what I'd like to think of as intellectualism. I yeah. think intellectualism at, at its best should be an act of listening, an act of yes, learning, yes, an yes. act of, I mean, you study deeply, you read, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, right, like, right, right, you know, right, that, right. that's what it should be. And it should never come to the table with a set of assumptions about what somebody else is already supposed to know or some predetermined framework or whatever, like it. Yes, I agree. So then maybe we're talking, we're, we have different terms. We just don't like those intellectuals. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The other. (laughs) Right. Right. So no, I think that to me, uh, a study and thinking is a tremendous pleasure, you know, and I, and I like to read a lot (laughs) and I, and I wish I could read more and learn more and have more thoughts, you know, so it's not like I don't like thoughts <laughs> right, right, and right. words. I really enjoy that. But uh, yeah, I want to be able to set it all aside and listen to reality uh, when reality presents itself to me. I don't want to, I don't want to project onto reality too much. I mean, inevitably I will, but let me do that as little as possible. So when you sit with a Zen story, you kind of have to set your preconceptions aside and just listen to the story. And I want to listen to every you know, I want to be able to like, you know, like I was just outside at Union Square, you know, and I was really taking in, it's a beautiful market out there, right? Mm. It's amazing stuff there. And just the experience of being there in the sunshine in the market was a wonderful thing. And I don't want to like, just like be rushing around with my ideas and preconceptions. I want to just stop for a minute and be there with that or, or the human being that I'm meeting. I want to be able to be innocent for a moment with that phenomenon that's in front of me. And I think that's what the point of sitting with a Zen story is all about. Can you, can you free yourself for a moment from your preconceptions and just be there with something? So it's about listening. And more deeply, you know, that's the point of, of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the whole, yeah. the whole practice. Well, that's what like, makes yeah. life worth living. And that's, that's the only way we're going to get out of the, get out of this, crisis we're in, you know, is to listen to one another and listen to the earth and listen to the, the catastrophes that are appearing all around us, listen to them. And that deeply. means, and that means hearing, that means hearing and, and absorbing and taking in a lot of suffering too, a lot exactly. of stuff we might not want to. Exactly. Hear, and it's yeah. a lot of stuff we're scared of. So we need to yeah. increase our ability to be with suffering and increase our courage to be, to be with suffering. And yeah, we're going to have to bear a lot of sorrow in the future, more than we are right now. Norman, there's so, there's so much more in the book and so much more I wanted to talk about. I mean, how, how emptiness can also lead to, to love and compassion and so, so, so much more for, for people to discover in, in your book. And if this conversation went on, you know, for... 24 more hours that we mm-hmm. could talk about, but, <laughs> yes. but I, I, we've come to the end and thank you so much for thank you. Thank you, Jason. Really fun to be here. Nice to meet you. It's great to meet you too. Yeah. Um, Norman's book is the world could be otherwise. Thanks for listening. Some big changes are coming for me in 2020. So if you'd like to stay in touch, Please take a moment to visit my website, jasongots.com, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com, and sign up for my mailing list. 
The sign up is a little pop-up form, so if you're using an ad blocker, you might want to disable it just on my site. There are no other ads. I'll be back next week with audio legend Jad Abumrad, and I hope you can join me.